Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, thanks very much for joining me today. We have two wonderful books and their authors here to discuss. One top of the shelf, our second interview is with Richard Devaney. His book, Beating the Commodity Trap, How to Maximize Your Competitive Position and Increase Your Pricing Power. Richard is ranked as one of the 50 world's most influential thought leaders. He exposes the dangers of today's cost-cutting copycat trends, beating the commodity trap, how to maximize your competitive position and increase your pricing power. If you think that's a little heady, Richard is down from Tuck School of Business at uh, Dartmouth up there in the wilds of New Hampshire, and uh, he travels all over the world. His first book, Hyper Competition in 1994, took the pricing world by storm. It was a little different thought process. Now he follows that some 15 years later with Beating the Commodity Trap and talks about pricing models in big business, but interesting for all to hear and relevant to what's going on in the world. The first interview is with Dan Rome, the back of the napkin solving problems and selling ideas with pictures. I talked to Dan a couple of years ago when this book first came out. This one is a new expanded edition, and it has a companion piece, Unfolding the Napkin, the hands-on method for solving complex problems with simple pictures. And this is a book you'll want to keep a little bit closer on, uh, to you on the shelf for everybody, people in business and people solving problems in their personal lives because he tells you how to depict a problem in a way that not only you can understand it, but then you can convey the solution to many others. If you don't believe it, believe me, you'll want to hear Dan Rome right now. Oh, well, and nice to talk to you again and see you this time. What do people learn from your book, How to Accomplish Better Than the Alternative? Absolutely. Well, Paul, I have an extraordinarily simple proposition that I make to business people. It goes like this. It says, we can solve our problems with pictures. We really can solve our problems, whatever they are, with pictures. And, you know, when I say that to people, in particular, if I'm addressing a large crowd, at, you know, I'm talking to executives at Boeing, or I've had a chance to address the United States Senate and, and a whole bunch of different organizations, I recognize that, you know, to get up in front of a bunch of business people and say, hey, we can solve our problems with pictures is a real stretch for a lot of people. They say, they know, that might sound nice, but that sounds like a little bit of snake oil. What, what are you actually talking about? I mean, is that sounds real? cheesy. It does, but it's also a nice soundbite. I have the advantage of knowing your book from two years ago, so okay. I know it's not cheesy. The reaction I've gotten from people is not that it's cheesy. The reaction that I've gotten from people is, wait a minute, that sounds like a gross oversimplification. You better clarify what you mean by that to me. And what I've learned is if I break it down, that's, that statement, we can solve our problems with pictures, into three essential questions, I can get people to follow along with me and understand what I'm talking about. And those three questions are, which problems am I talking about? Which pictures am I talking about? And the third one is, which people am I talking about? Namely, who is actually going to do this? Because let's face it, most of us think that we're not visual. Most of us think, oh, maybe pictures are powerful, or maybe there's something to using visuals. Uh, but, you know, I can't draw. I'm not a visual person, not for me. To which I say, I'm sorry, you're absolutely wrong. We are, as humans, fundamentally visual. And I don't mean that just from a cognitive perspective. Just to throw some statistics out there from a neurobiological perspective, uh, if, if you think about all of the neurons in our brain that are responsible for processing incoming sensory information. So in fact, what we're talking about is all of the neurons in our brain that are responsible for us understanding and recognizing inputs from the world around us. All of those. Three quarters of those neurons are focused on vision. Vision is far and away the largest single aspect of cognition that our brain handles. It could be argued that of any single task that our brain handles in, in terms of sheer capacity, if you're to break down everything that we do, the one task that we do the most and the greatest amount of our brain is occupied on handling is vision. Kind of another interesting number to throw out there is some recent studies um, on, on uh, child development and cognitive development 
are starting to show us that in about the first four months of an infant's life, almost all of the rapid development of the brain is taking place in the areas that really focus on vision and movement. So this tells us something. The fact that three quarters of our sensory neurons are focused on vision, and the fact that the first four months of, months of our life are focused on seeing the world around us and understanding how to navigate through us, vision must be pretty important to us. Not surprisingly, it is. What I've tried to do, really the essence, which problems can we solve with pictures? Well, all of them. Any problem that we have the ability to articulate at all, we have the ability to articulate abundantly more clearly through the use of a picture. Which pictures are we talking about? I mean, if these pictures are going to help us solve any problem we can conceive of, they must be, they must be extraordinarily sophisticated and complex pictures, I mean, right? That require years of artistic training. Well, absolutely not. The pictures are boneheadedly simple. I mean, if any one of us can draw a, a rough cube, a square, a circle, an arrow, or a stick figure, that's all we need to be able to draw. Which answers that third question, you might remember, which people who are going to do this? We're all visual. We're all going to do this. I don't care if you think you can draw or not. Drawing isn't the point. It's thinking, using this extraordinarily powerful visual system that we have and doing that intentionally and actively. You're not a visual artist, per se, or are you? I am. You, are you a consultant as well? I, I mean, where, where did this, what was, what was the marriage here that gave rise to the back of the napkin? I really love that question because it can kind of take me back to a time when I knew what I was doing <laughs> or thought I did. I, d I went to the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I got two degrees. And it, in Santa Cruz, they let you do this. I got two. Uh, well, we two think degrees. in New York that in California you get a chance. Well, my to two do brothers went things. to my two. I have two older brothers, and they both went to Ivy League schools. Mm -hmm. And the academic rigor around your career was so rigorous that there is no way that most Ivy League East Coast uh, schools are going to let you get away with what I did at Santa Cruz. I did two majors. I did a major in painting, fine art, and a major in biology. Hmm. So I had very hard science, and I had very hard painting. And it was that combination that was really fascinating to me. And, and not to get too esoteric about it, but one of the classes that I took in biology was organic chemistry. And for anyone who's ever studied organic chemistry, it is a completely visual area of study because what organic chemistry is, is how do atoms other of other elements combine with carbon to create very complex and sophisticated molecules, the building blocks of life. And it turns out that by virtue of how a carbon atom is structured, there are only certain ways that it can bond with other atoms. And so if you've ever seen those little stick and ball models that are always... I can even remember those. It's purely a visual medium. Well, the double helix was that way. There you have it. And in fact, interesting you should bring that up because doctors Watson and Crick, who discovered the form of the double helix, worked for months and months and months on trying to come up with various confirmations of the amino acids to try to figure out what, what form could there possibly be to this molecule that could replicate itself. And it was finally a drawing that Dr. Crick drew that was the breakthrough. In fact, I have a copy of the very first drawing. Anybody can look it up online. If you look up Drs. Watson and Crick in the original DNA drawing, you'll find it. But he had a notebook sitting next to his bed. And in typical story, the visual, the breakthrough came through in a visual. He'd been digesting the information for so long. His brain was super saturated with all of the data. And all that needed to happen was for his brain to kind of calm down a little bit and, and forget the details for a moment and kind of let the possibilities emerge, and he drew a little sketch, which is which was fantastic because it's actually identical to what the double helix in the end ended up looking like. And uh, jumping ahead to to what Apple did by creating these little pictures, the icons, which at the time was revolutionary. A visual interface. A My visual goodness, interface. what about that? Yeah. So, so I, I know I kind of digressed off your original question, but what was the origin of a lot of this? As I say, my background was in fine art and in biology. When I got out of school, the first job I could get was as a graphic designer. The fact that I drew all the time, designers draw all the time. That was absolutely normal. But then through a very circuitous series of events, I ended up moving into management consulting, marketing communications, finally technology consulting. And the fact that I would go into these business meetings and be the guy who drew made me very weird 
because people and in very business, different. I was differentiated is the mm -hmm. term we like to use. People in business don't draw. And the fact is, what would happen is every time I was in a sales meeting, I would be the guy who would run up to the whiteboard or pull out a piece of paper and say, wait a minute, sir or ma'am, if I understand what you just said, I think it looks something like this. And I would draw you rendered it. I'm I sorry. would draw it. I would render it visually. And the dynamic in the room, it was like magic. The dynamic in the room would so radically change the moment that I did that from what was often a kind of a combative meeting situation into a truly collaborative one because now all of a sudden everybody could see what it was that prior we had only been talking about. And I would know that you we'd get everybody on the same page. We'd get everybody literally on the same page. And then you knew, it sounds a bit mercenary to say this, but in a way you knew that you'd won the meeting the moment that the, other, the person on the other side of the table would kind of stop me in the midst of my drawing and say, Dan, I really like what you're representing here, but you know, you get this piece wrong in my understanding. Here, give me the pen and let me show you what I'm thinking. And this is the person who normally would have sat there and said, this, you know, Dan's an idiot because he doesn't understand what I'm talking about. He doesn't think I'm an idiot anymore. He's willing, he or she is willing to participate with me because I don't want to get too far down the path of the neurobiology, but there are some fascinating aspects well, and, we, and as you and I spoke, uh, that whole field is becoming much, people are becoming much more aware of how the brain works because yes. of fMRIs and the ability to actually see in. So before, what, what constituted maybes are now, we know yes. mechanically and in fact what the brain is doing through hot spots and synapses and the like that are we're visually represented. We're beginning to know. We're, we're getting beginning to know. To yeah, know. Absolutely. We well, still don't have a clue, but right. we're beginning to, to understand. It's pretty scary. Yeah. We know enough to be scared now. Yeah, so we know we enough to be dangerous. Yes, to be dangerous. Well, and in fact, it, 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 there are a lot of books and business books out there right now, my, my own included, that, that, that do refer to functional MRI studies or a little bit of brain science. And, and we all have to be very careful because there's a tendency, and I know I share this with a lot of other people, to get a real sort of gee whiz reaction to it. And, you know, the scientist in me does want to moderate that and say, well, this theory is a good theory that seems to hold up with the knowledge that we have right now, but we know it'll all be blown up in a few years when, when something else comes along. And not to stretch the point too far, but I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with this notion of left brain and right brain. Right, and you have a picture of that and, and how and that's represented. There, there, is a, there, is an, there, there is an essential truth to the fact that we are of two brains. All of us is of two minds. Well, and here's a really interesting nuance. I just better I, I better interrupt yeah. to say that the voice at the other end is Dan Rome. The book we're discussing is The Back of the Napkin, Solving Problems and Selling Ideas with Pictures. It's an engage more than an engaging notion, and now Dan has packaged both the back of the napkin and unfolding the napkin. I want you just to highlight the book because I want to I want to move from this portion to how you put the book together and then perhaps give an example of, of what the book actually would help the reader to do in the business situation. Un, uh, the back of the napkin introduces the idea that we can solve our problems. We can clarify our problems by using simple pictures. And we don't need artistic talent. We don't need to know how to draw. We don't need sophisticated computer software. This is quite literally something that we can do with a pen and a scrap of paper. And we're all very good at it. Now, when you say that, is this to help the individual solve their own, the problem that's in front of them? Or is it more important to be able to describe and discuss that and convey the issue to the group that you're trying to move to a solution? This is why I love it so much, because it's both. This isn't only about communications and presentation, of which there are hundreds and hundreds of books about how to give a more effective PowerPoint presentation or how to be more clear in, in your presentation of an idea or data. Using pictures helps that. But to your point, using pictures also helps us, either individually or as a team, quite literally discover ideas that would have been invisible if we had not looked at them visually. And then... By sketching these things out as crudely or as roughly as we need to, that it helps us almost instantly start to expand and develop our crazy notion in a way that makes it allow us, allows us to kind of test it, prototype it before we've spent any money or we've actually built anything. I guess what I'm suggesting, Paul, is, is the continuum I think about is, and it does flow in, in kind of a path from beginning to, to end, is 
The use of simple pictures helps us discover an idea for ourselves or with our team. It then helps us rapidly develop that idea without spending a lot of money or a lot of time and test it out quickly. Would it, does, does this idea have a hope and hack of, of, of doing anything or are we better to just throw it away now? At least we can see the idea. Whereas if we'd only talked about it, we've already forgotten the idea, idea number one, by the time we move on to idea number two. There's no, there's no hook there for us to recall. This is, I, I want to stay on that particular spectrum for a moment. And then once we've drawn out that picture, we now have a picture that is an extraordinarily powerful way to communicate our idea to someone else. So it's that whole continuum. If I was going to speak hyperbolically, if I was going to use marketing speak, I would say what visual problem solving offers is an entirely new way of thinking from A to Z. That's not a fair statement at all because, in fact, visual thinking predates verbal thinking by about 300 million years. Visual thinking is what we are far better at than we believe. Visual thinking, and what I mean by that is a crocodile has a very powerful visual processing system, no verbal processing system whatsoever. If we tap into our innate abilities Why as do you people. A crocodile? Well, a crocodile is in, it shares an interesting similarity to a human. A crocodile has a part of the brain that's called the reptilian brain. Uh, evolutionarily speaking, anywhere from, oh gosh, 60 to 200 million years ago, uh, started, to, started to appear. Um, we humans have a reptilian brain as well. Uh, and it's, it's the little piece that caps our brain stem. Our brain stem is kind of the, the, the essential proto piece of our brain that is shared with, you know, all kinds of life. And on top of that, a really sophisticated move came in with the, the, the advent or the arrival of, of reptiles, the reptilian brain. The reptilian brain has a very strong visual processing center that allows the reptile to see where it is in relation to other objects around it. Now, the reason why that's important is we humans retained our reptilian brain and then over the millennia developed, however it might have worked out, on top of that, a neocortex and a cortex, which a reptile does not have. Mammals have and humans have a really sophisticated one. What the cortex allows us to do is process information, incoming sensory information and, and thought and behaviors in infinitely more sophisticated ways than the reptilian brain does. But the thing that's remarkable and why I take a, a crocodile as an example is a crocodile, as much as Steve Irwin, if anyone remembers Steve Irwin, who was the crocodile guy out of Australia who, who right. passed away a couple of years ago, as much as Steve Irwin might have wanted to believe that a crocodile would recognize him and know him from someone else and therefore not eat him, it's not going to happen. A crocodile does not have the mental capacity. It doesn't have the piece of the brain required to actively recognize one person from another or really even one object from another. A cro from, a, from a vision science perspective, we would say that a crocodile, and we humans in our reptilian brain, have a very powerful wear pathway, wear visual pathway. We're able to identify, as a crocodile is, where objects are. What a crocodile does not have that we humans do is a very well-developed what pathway. Okay. A crocodile okay. doesn't know what an object is. It only knows where it is. And, and therefore, the crocodile will always, it will never learn that this is something to eat and this is something not to eat. It will try to eat anything that it thinks is moving in a threatening or digestible way. It'll never recognize Steve Irwin from a bus. It doesn't have the piece of the brain to do that. And there is a hook in there for the W in where because you, you use that to develop your concept right? In, on the, in the back of the napkin. Yes, and that concept, if I may, just for a moment, says, okay, Dan, that's wonderful theory, our, our you know, familial relationship to a crocodile, but I'm in a business meeting. What the heck does this have to do with anything? Well, what it has to do with it is when we face a problem, we have a built-in mechanism to help us take that problem apart into its component elements, and rather than try to address it as one big overwhelming scary, ah, deer-in-the-headlights moment, take the problem apart. Start to think it through. Thinking it through visually 
aids us enormously in being able to literally see what are the what what are the what are the physical components of my problem who is involved and what is involved and then what are the quantitative aspects of my problem how many of each of those things are there okay now we're moving our way through what i call the six w's who and what how much the next one is where where are all of these things in relation to each other and so on around the circle completing how who and what how much where when how and if you add all of those together you end up with why and they're not just questions that we ask ourselves they're actually the components of any problem that we face and what i have learned without fail is if we approach a problem well Frankly, if a problem overwhel overwhelms us, period, and we get that deer in the headlights look, we're never going to solve it. We're just going to get hit by the car and die. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that in business. We don't want to do that in life. We have been blessed with an extraordinarily sophisticated system that we're born with that helps us parse the problem into these pieces. And what I'm suggesting is if we create pictures of each one of those pieces, we do not need to know how to create hundreds of pictures to solve or clarify any problem. We need to know how to draw six one for each one of the various visual pathways that we have. One for each one of the W's. One for each one of the W's. And the ironic thing is that for anybody who's ever been through fifth grade English class, you know, our English teachers always used to say, you know, I'll give you an A if in your expository essay you're able to account for who, what, where, when, and why. You know, that makes a good article, that makes a good story. Well, I don't know that my English teacher, you know, Mrs. Bates, knew that what she was tapping into was a fundamental underlying model of the structure of our brain. We break what we see into the same six specific types of information, and that's how we then stitch them together later and get the big picture. Have you found that in large corporations with whom you've had very successful interactions that they begin to structurally address problems in this way? To varying degrees, the, the answer would be yes. And some corporations uh, gravitate towards this so quickly. And I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of examples. I have done some workshops at, uh, at, at Kraft, for example, uh, just north of Chicago. And uh, people in the room said, my goodness, we're going to start using this immediately in our presentations and in our brainstorming sessions. And then there are other businesses and organizations that I've spoken to, the United States Senate, for example, where I don't know that I left the room and someone was suddenly appointed as, as chief visualization officer of the new policy committee of the, of the Senate. But I could see a twinkle in a lot of people's eyes thinking, when it comes to addressing complex issues of policy, this is going to be a really powerful tool for us. And, and I would like to share a story with you in that Please. regard, if I may. Uh, I've, become, I've become interested in some of the bigger national policy issues that we face because uh, last summer when the new administration, the, the Obama administration, first began talking about health care reform, uh, I got very anxious when I saw that these town hall meetings were taking place where people were bringing guns and, and, and fights were breaking out. And I thought, wait a minute, this is about health care. This isn't about fight. There's clearly something wrong here. And I don't think the message is being conveyed in a clear way about what health care reform is about. And if, if I really believe what I say, if I really want to put my money where my mouth is and really do believe that we can, at a minimum, clarify problems through the use of pictures, I ought to be able to clarify through my simple pictures, what are the actual essential elements of the healthcare debate? It's not about killing grandma, it's not about death panels, it's none of that. What is the legislation actually about? Because if we can at least agree on what people are discussing, then we can decide whether to fight about it or not. But the fight is happening before we even know what anybody's talking about. So I, I am not an expert on healthcare. I have done consulting work with a number of healthcare companies over the years, but I have a, a former colleague of mine, a guy named uh, Dr. Tony Jones, one of the smartest consultants I've ever worked with, who has a career in advising healthcare companies. Now, Tony's down in Los Angeles, and I called Tony up one day. I'm in San Francisco, and I said, Tony, I want to come down to your office, bring along printouts of all the legislation. This would have been last August. And I want to spend, just lock the doors of your office. You've got lots of whiteboards. Let's figure out a way to visually represent what the healthcare reform debate is really about. And we did that. 
Tony providing most of the information and me providing a visual record or a visual way of breaking it down into simple, simply understood visual models. And I came up with four. The point I want to make, Paul, is that I created a little PowerPoint presentation that included my pictures. I posted it online. Within a few weeks, it had something like 250,000 downloads. Now, that's not an enormous number. You know, a new hit song will get a million uh, hits, uh, you know, a million downloads overnight. But a quarter of a million downloads for a PowerPoint document on healthcare, which, let's face it, must be about the most boring thing on earth, tells us that there was something in those pictures that made people gravitate towards wanting to look at them. Long story short, wildly successful, very simple. It got picked up by the Huffington Post. Then it got picked up by Fox News. Fox News called me and said, Dan, we want you to come on air during prime time and show the American people in your very simple pictures what the healthcare debate is really about in a non-political way, which is what the pictures are. They just state the facts in a visual form. I went on. They gave me seven minutes on prime time on Fox. So now I'm a national expert on health care only by virtue of the fact that I'm the one person who drew a set of very simple pictures that accurately described the essentials of the legislation. I got emails back, hundreds and hundreds of emails from people on all sides of the political spectrum, all of them agreeing that and I don't say this for the point of self-aggrandizement. There's a lesson here. All of them saying this is the clearest description of the essentials of healthcare we've ever seen. Now I understand, you know, that you're a commie pinko fascist <laughs> or what have you. <laughs> now but at least now, 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 but I right. understand why. Why are you a voice crying in the wilderness regarding that? Oh well, from a business perspective, okay. Let's let's be clear. This notion of solving problems with pictures or drawing our way out of a problem is something that is completely familiar to anyone who has a background in engineering, architecture, design, quote, let's call it, quote-unquote, the creative work. People from that side, I, I address and even, often... Even the chemists. Even the chemists, the organic chemists. Idea. Most scientists. A scientist will not publish a paper unless there are drawings of the data. What does this data distill down to from a visual perspective to help me draw out conclusions from it? What we have created is, in our business world, an environment of people who do not believe that there's any value in this sort of ability to draw out a problem to describe it in a kind of a qualitative way. And I think what, what's happening is, all I'm saying is in a business meeting, if we did draw, if we took advantage of what we know, things will be a lot clearer to all of us. And the business people are saying, you know, you're right. And no one in business school ever taught me that. They never even told me that was okay. And in fact, the way that we've learned to do meeting, meeting in America, is we talk at each other. And, or you bring in your, your PowerPoint that's full of bullets, and you list off your bullets to me. And if you do show me a picture, it's going to be a chart that I probably won't understand anyway. I'm talking about a, a different way of doing meeting. I really want you in the meeting to understand what I'm talking about. I'm going to draw it out for you. And as I draw it and I describe it, I guarantee you're going to get it. And when you get it, we'll actually communicate. Dan Rome, two books. One, a re-release, expanded edition of his book of two years ago, The Back of the Napkin, Solving Problems and Selling Ideas with Pictures. And the second book, and it is in softcover. It is. Uh, Unfolding the Napkin, The Hands-On Method for Solving Complex Problems with Simple Pictures. Um, portfolio is the imprint on both, and it can be found through the usual outlets. And there is also a website that people can go to, Dan? It's www.thebackofthenapkin.com. No spaces or hyphens, just one long word, thebackofthenapkin.com. And uh, you can find downloadable tools. You can find video overviews of the main lessons, the tools and rules from both books. In March of this year, I'll be offering my first workshop. It's a two-day workshop. Uh, where we will use Unfolding the Napkin as the textbook, and we will work our way through the entire textbook in, in two days. Um, and there's an opportunity on that website for people to register for that event if, if they want to participate where will as that well. take place? Taking place in San Francisco, the Kabuki Hotel, March 4th and 5th of 2010. Dan, thanks very much for the revisit. Uh, good luck with the book, and we look forward to following the success of this method of different way of thinking and different way of conveying information. Thank you, Paul.
interesting fellow, that Dan Rome. I enjoyed talking to him a couple of years ago and was delighted to revisit with him with that new expanded division uh, edition and the companion piece, Unfolding the Napkin. I've passed the book on to colleagues and professional colleagues and friends, and it is more than interesting. It works, and I encourage you to pick it up, try the notion. We all think of the back of the napkin, and now it's a book, now it's a concept, and it does work. Paul McLaughlin with you, McLaughlin at work. And our next guest, Richard Devaney, one of the world's most influential thought leaders, talking about the beating the commodity trap as noted at the top of the hour. This is the second book of Richard's along this line. And he talks about big business, but in a way that you'll understand better the traps for your business and your division. But you can also understand what's happening in the world around us, the world of publishing, with what Apple is doing with the iPad, the world of music, and the world of selling retail uh, clothing. Interesting and uh, presented in a way that we understand, is made understandable by speaking with Richard Devaney, a very personable, strategic professor from Tuck. But before we get to that, just a reminder about one of my sponsors here on McLaughlin at Work, Classroom 24-7, web-enhanced training and certification for that training, all on the web, maybe exactly the ticket that you need for your business or for your life. And if you're looking for that kind of certification, either for others or for yourself, Classroom 24-7 may be just the ticket. Give them a shot. They do it well. And they do it in support of McLaughlin at work. Now, on to Beating the Commodity Trap and Richard Devaney. Richard, thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you, Paul. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, interesting that we are talking. Usually we don't try and be terribly topical on these things, but you've written a book that is, uh, is around pricing strategy and falling into, as you call it, the commodity traps of trap, of which there are three, as I read from your book. And right here on the heels of the release of the much heralded release of the iPad, and much was made, literally yesterday, um, in the release information about the price points. But I want you to hold on to that as a little bit of a tease, because I know that in your book you talk about Apple. Um, beating the commodity trap. I had a tough time getting into this book, mm -hmm. but that's me. Explain your book to people who will want to read it for what they get out of it, but don't understand that there's a lurking problem out there that they've got to address. Okay. Well. Uh, Paul, I want you to imagine um, that somebody takes your tape recordings and copies them over and then puts them on another website for downloading within three to five days of your ability to do that. How would you feel at the end of that? Not good. Not good, right? And that's what's essentially happening um, in many industries. So let's take a look at the, f the fashion industry. The uniqueness of products disappear so quickly uh, that it's uh, very difficult for companies to maintain that fashion edge and the premium price. And so we've been watching, in, uh, especially in the European part, where the, where the brand names st still mean something like Armani and Prada and so forth. Um, uh, a company called Zara, it's a Spanish company, uh, that's in the United States, um, but only in a few in places. Europe. Yeah, I've seen them in Europe as well. Yeah. There are a couple of stores here in New York. Yeah, that, that's right. And uh, the, the, um, uh, the stores here in the United States are positioned differently. They're a little more low-end in Europe, and here they're a little higher-end because their costs are, are um, uh, much higher here because all of their facilities and their warehousing and so forth is shipped out of Spain. Uh, but the, the bottom line is, is that a, a company uh, like Zara um, has created a, 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 a couple of dil dilemmas and, and uh, strategic problems for the industry. Uh, one is uh, a commodity trap I like to, to, to call the um, 
uh, the deterioration trap. It's a low-end player, replicates very quickly, six to eight, eight, eight weeks. Uh, it takes designer ready-to-wear clothes and turns it into less expensive, more disposable fashion. You wear it five or six times and throw it away, but it looks exactly like the, uh, the ready-to-wear uh, items. And <clears throat> so this model is happening, uh, the low-end discounter is happening in a lot of industries, and it will be the equivalent um, of, of somebody basically um, uh, that, that gave away your podcasts for, for free, and uh, uh, making it impossible for you to uh, be able to uh, afford the nice drinks we're having here. Or to be special in the marketplace uh, and, and, com and, and continue to differentiate. Now, I should it, it, it's unfair of me not to have uh, allowed your credentials to leak out. You are the professor of strategic management at uh, Tech School of Business, which is at Dartmouth, as, as I think everybody knows. And you uh, are you've written a, a number of books, but one was on hyper competition in 1994. And you are named uh, one of the top management thinkers in the world, management thinkers, CNN, the London Times and the Times of India. So that, you sort of got the globe covered on that. But let me ask you this. At least this. the English-speaking part. <laughs> <laughs> the English-speaking. Well, that's, that's, that's the, that's, that is certainly the language. Um, when we come back to Zara in a second, but mm -hmm. cut to the chase. Hyper-competition in 1994, the name of your book, mm -hmm. was positioned at a time when hyper-competition meant what? relative mm -hmm. to the commodity track. Yeah, uh, they're both similar, one builds on the other. Uh, Hyper-competition was about how the speed of change was uh, uh, changing the way you had to think about strategy. Rather than having long-term competitive advantages, uh, you would have to use a series or sequence of short-term advantages strung together. So, so strategy, rather than being sustainable competitive advantage uh, or leveraging your core competency, had to move on to creating new core competencies and to um, uh, 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 constantly attacking your rivals at a more aggressive level to obsolete their competitive advantages. Now, that book obviously did very well in both academic and in commercial corporate zones. Um, what was revolutionary about it to, to people who read it and say, wow, he's really got something I never thought of. What, what, what allowed you to be the genius there? Well, uh, thanks for calling me that, but uh, uh, what was the essence of that book was it contradicted the main theory of strategy at the time, which was Michael Porter's strategy on uh, five forces analysis, which was all based on building long-term advantages. And now what I've done is with this new book is I've moved on to to uh, in hyper competition rather let me finish that what I what I did was I uh, I gave a set of solutions about company culture and and behavior that had to be changed like uh, building creativity building surprise um, changing the priorities you give different stake stakeholders uh, they were more kind of cultural and goals based items this book breaking the I mean beating the commodity trap is uh, <coughs> focused more on the product maneuvering that you can do to deal with hyper hyper competitive markets and so commodities is the worst form of hyper-competition. Um, and so it, to some extent, uh, the hyper-competition of 1994 was one that based on what you had to do to build a, a corporate culture. It was more about the people, the sense of creativity, that you had to reinvent yourself uh, regularly. That book was about changing the mindset of the way people were thinking, rather than sustaining your advantage and, and attacking the weakness of rivals. This was about recreating uh, new advantages and attacking the strengths of ri uh, the strengths of rivals rather than the weaknesses. So I've carried on with that in beating the commodity trap, except this one is much more focused about how players can uh, take advantage of the commodity traps that are out there, how they can escape them, or how they can undermine and destroy them. But what was it that happened around Y2K or thereafter that makes the commodity trap the issue du jour mm -hmm. as opposed to the people and creativity issues that were yeah. more prevalent in uh, the end of the last century? Yeah, well, I, I think the, the book 
is an extension, not something to replace hyper-competition. Okay. Uh, so all those cultural things. You still need things, people to be creative. Uh, you still need more, people more than even ever. more than, than in, in the past. But the level of competition has gone past hyper-competition now. It's like hyper-competition on steroids. And what I mean by that is when I wrote the book in 1994, it was a very fortunate thing. The Internet had not been in, uh, come out. It really only started in 95 and 96. And uh, it justified my point. Uh, but, it, uh, but I wrote it, uh, and it was... Kind of, uh, prescient of the of the changes that were going to take place, but, but so even you could not have predicted what the internet was going to was going to look like. Uh, no, I didn't. No, I didn't uh, at that point. But I what what I did predict was that uh, companies are going to have to deal with that kind of lightning fast set of changes, and the fact that uh, uh, internet can destroy bri bricks and mortar uh, stores and and so forth. Uh, I predicted this idea of the the constant disruption of the marketplace and the disruption of the advantage of rivals that would take place um, based on technological change um, and based on globalization. And it, it, in those days, globalization meant Japan and the tigers, the Asian tigers. Right, uh, and, e and even in the early 90, early 90s, the immersion of Europe. Um, that's and right, Mexico the integration, and, uh, that that right, NAFTA, and so forth. Yes. So, so the bottom line was, uh, uh, what's changed significantly since right. then? And okay. I think the the simple answer is two words: China, India. And now what we're facing is a much more aggressive and bigger wave of uh, of competition that will come in that will commoditize all of our products relatively quickly. And what does that mean when something is commoditized? And then describe the three traps that uh, are waiting to be pulled on virtually every competitive environment, every competitive industry. Okay. Well, uh, commoditization has been with us since the uh, the origins of capitalism. Even the stone uh, wheel was replicated and sold, I'm sure, by many other people <laughs> before, before the before the concept, of, yeah. <laughs> the concept of the flat came in. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it took a few, a, a few millennia, I guess, <laughs> before right. the next generation wheel showed up. Uh, all joking aside, it's it's part of what is competition, but it's sped up so much now because the the Chinese are able to replicate things much quicker, and and they're getting better at innovation as they go along, and the Indians can replicate uh, services now even at a low cost. So think about tax preparation. Uh, we you go to your tax preparer, and you're not sure whether it's getting done in this country or it's being done on on computer by somebody in India. Um, and they run schools in Bangalore teaching people about American taxation, income taxes. So, Well, that certainly uh, is true for call centers and the like, uh, oh yeah. even, even the help desks of but, uh, many companies. That's right, and it's creeping up into higher level services yes. now. Uh, uh, so, for example, uh, if you uh, hire one of the major consulting firms, some of, the, some of them will have the first phase of the consulting firm, uh, a consulting activity, the industry assessment, the collection of all kinds of data, uh, and, and so forth done in India, uh, where they search for it all online. And where the people who have been hired have a Obviously, speak English, speak English and, and are very and well trained. Exactly. They're just as well trained as we see top-level people in the United States. They're just States. not paid as much. Well, yeah, and that's a, that's a, a big that's problem a for us. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. a major problem. Yeah, this is a, this is a big problem for, yeah. for all sorts of folks. So, we, uh, so, uh, and, uh, so I, I think what we're watching is a new era of hyper-competition on steroids because of the size of China and India and just how much resources they can throw at us. So, so I think about it like this, and in the 1990s we were really still struggling with the Japanese and Asian tigers, as I mentioned. Th that represented about 75 to 100 million people, but now we're talking about e e uh, populations of 1.5 billion and 1.2 billion, th th you know, this kind of order of magnitude. and. Um, uh, so we're going to have to be even faster and smarter than we were before. Isn't there a natural deterioration of quality as, as uh, products and services are imitated? Certainly call centers have had that. Mm -hmm. We've had at least three or four different issues with the Chinese around foodstuffs and drugs and the like where mm -hmm. 
the, the, the attention to detail wasn't there, the purity wasn't there, we didn't even know what was going into the product there. Mm -hmm. How, I, will there be a backlash about this, or, 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 or are we talking about, when you say commodity, large yeah. volumes of things where people, a la Walmart, if they can get it for less, that's what they're going to buy. Yeah, well, uh, that's a very interesting question because I first entered the research with the idea that what commoditization was is everything becomes cheap and and low end and then uh, uh, and low priced. So Walmart would be a perfect example. Uh, but it turns out that that's only one type of commoditization. Commoditization is the loss of uniqueness of your product in the marketplace. And uh, 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 and I, I'm I sorry, loss of the loss, the loss of the of, uniqueness yeah. of your product in the marketplace. Uh, so what really made me finally decide to write this book was a story where I went to a restaurant um, in Boston. I had just bought a, a new Lexus and. And uh, a GS 300, and I, I, I valet parked the, the car. And when I came out, I asked the valet to get my car, like, like anybody would. And he said to me, "Oh, I remember you. You're the guy who came in the Honda." And and I was completely like, "Wow!" Because I I didn't even shop in the Honda uh, lots because I wasn't in the market for that. I wanted to, to buy a, a better car. And uh, and here I have people telling me that my car looks like the Honda. So the next day I went to the Honda lot, and in the Honda lot uh, there were all sorts of cars there that if I had seen. I never would have bought this Lexus <laughs> because they were uh, the body design was almost identical. The, the color was identical, um, and it was twenty five thousand dollars less. <laughs> I can do without that little cheap pl uh, pl plastic thing that right. looks like wood. You know yeah. how they <laughs> they put inside the car. I do. Um, well, you know, and I, I, I could I, buy my uh, my navigation system for from Delphi for three hundred bucks. <laughs> and so, what, as I was doing my research, I found that there were lots of industries suffering exactly the problem that you're talking about, the sinking to the low end, and, uh, uh, or, you know, like the Walmart effect type thing. And that uh, sinking to the low end I labeled as deterioration. The market basically um, deteriorates until there's, uh, uh, until everybody's offering really the cheapest stuff and all the middle level goods and even the high end goods start disappearing from the market. And I, I discovered, though, that in other industries, we see two other kinds of commoditization taking place. One is the exact opposite of deterioration, which I called escalation. And escalation is the uh, creation of higher and higher uh, quality, but selling at lower and lower prices. So think consumer electronics, think LCD, t LCD uh, TVs, which cost um, $5,000 three years ago and now selling for $1,000 for, for the same quality. And uh, of course, better quality ones keep coming into the, the marketplace, but uh, um, the overall flow is down to the, what I call the ultimate value for the customer, where they're giving away their good product um, or, or their best product. And now they'll come um, out with 3D. <coughs> so 3D is going to work its way into the system. Uh, uh, yeah, so that's the next generation right. with, uh, with any luck. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Coach Potato. Yeah, that, that that's right. Well, Avatar <laughs> proved that there's a market for it. Uh, uh, I, I think noticed so. from their t ticket sales that a majority came from the, the reason they made so much money was not because of the volume, but because they had a higher price because people wanted to see it in 3D. Yeah, in fact, that's I'm going to see it tonight. <laughs> so <laughs> it'll let me know funny. what you think yeah. when you come out a blue guy or not. <laughs> and the last yeah. type of and, and, uh, yeah, and the other type that I found was it was a great irony. It's called proliferation, and with proliferation, uh, a company ends up no longer unique because uh, lots of players position around it, a little bit above it, a little bit below it, on its sides and flanks, and as a consequence, uh, everything. Um, uh, that you offer is replicated somewhere else, except that they're offering it with more variety than you do. So think Sears Roebuck, and Sears was a middle class, the affordable. The, ro the Roebuck dates you. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Sears Roebuck in Boston. I mean, I, I know how yeah. it rolls off your tongue because it would yeah. also roll off mine. But there yeah. are a lot of people who say. What that? What's what store is that? Yeah. Well, let me put it this way: I'm over 21. <laughs> <laughs> Sears uh, uh, found itself surrounded from all directions. So at the low end, Walmart showed up, and a lot of those small.
small home appliances and plates and dishes and cutlery that you used to buy at, at Sears uh, now uh, became very difficult markets to make a profit in. Uh, at the same time, at the top end, in women's clothing and children's clothing, uh, uh, Sears had once been the number one seller of women's clothes and children's clothing. And they, they came up against companies consolidating. So whereas before, uh, Sears had just a, uh, I'd rather had uh, massive economies of scale, uh, they didn't have as many economies of scale when federated department stores put together all the small local department stores into a big chain and they put their name Macy's on top of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so so at the top end, Sears gets, uh, gets surrounded. And then Home Depot shows up in the men's marketplace and Ace Hardware and a whole bunch of uh, other uh, franchises in in, uh, uh, in the hardware business, and multiple catalogs show up uh, challenging the wish book. And as a consequence of this, um, the company got surrounded and, and it was eaten to death by a pack of piranhas. Um, and uh, for me, it's, a, it's kind of a great irony that, that the more you differentiate, the more you end up commoditizing hmm. uh, the marketplace. So differentiation cannot be enough of a solution. Um, and you need to do much more than that in, in this world. Uh, uh, Paul McLaughlin, uh, identifying myself, and my guest Richard Devaney, beating the commodity trap, how to maximize your competitive position and increase your pricing power. To a lot of people, and Harvard Business Press is the, uh, the imprint. We started out talking about Apple, while on the one hand it's, it's topical, uh, on the other hand, it's demonstrative of your point, and number three, you have it, the, a chart in the book, so take us through that for a second. Oh, sure. Um, I, I think Apple is a great example of what I'm talking about, and how, to, how we will have to compete more in the future. And, uh, uh, you know, my, my heroes are like Leonardo da Vinci and Steve Jobs. <laughs> they, you know, it doesn't Steve seem like they should go that. in the same right. pile, but they do. One of the things that people have been asking me about is will Apple be able to keep growing the way it has been now that it's hit the kind of the 40, 50 million billion dollar range, which is a stalling point for most big companies. After that, usually growth turns out to be only by, by mergers. Now why and, is that? Uh, uh, well, and it's because a lot of the companies end up as they grow bigger, suffer, suffering, uh, end up suffering from um, multiple of the commodity traps that, that, that set out. Uh, the, the first one is proliferation, as we talked about with Sears. And as you add more and more products and expand and get bigger, you end up also attracting more and more rivals. Right. Uh, so so uh, you look at Apple as a corporation and they compete against players uh, uh, in the PC marketplace and then they got into the phone. And, and, and none of those players were wimps, by the way. I mean, they were companies like Dell and uh, who was one, uh, once more aggressive and low-end uh, Chinese uh, uh, and other Asian manufacturers and, and so forth. And then uh, they jump from the fire, it looks like, I mean from the frying pan into the fire, they go into iPhones and now suddenly they're competing with Motorola and Nokia and Samsung and LG, uh, uh, big giant companies and now they're into this iPad which is kind of like a, a giant iPhone. In, in some ways, you just use that same operating system and, and that same method of moving things around on, on the pad as, a, as an operating system rather than going through a mouse and a, a keyboard. And uh, uh, the result is that uh, now they're, uh, they're going to create a whole bunch of new players that are their competitors uh, in, in that marketplace. But, but you had pointed out to me in that chart that they have been quite rigorous about their pricing on a competitive basis. Take us through that. Yeah, uh, well what makes Apple great, why do I believe it'll continue to grow, uh, is that most big companies get stalled out because of the proliferation trap and because of potentially an escalation trap. Um, and Apple has been able to deal with these two traps that that mostly stall people out. So, so let's talk about it. Um, with proliferation, they've got all these companies that they're fighting with and uh, or, or competing against, and 
they've managed to find a way to compete with them all simultaneously. And uh, that's been a very successful uh, method uh, used by the company, which is this revolutionized the market. So when they showed up in the iPhone marketplace uh, and, and in the, the cellular phone marketplace, the iPhone was so superior to everything out there and so different that uh, Samsung and Motorola and all the other players had to play catch up. And so what uh, what uh, Apple does is they, conti they continue to lower and lower the price over time, which is an escalation process, but raise the quality. So Apple's, the, uh, I mean iPods that cost uh, a lot of money at the beginning were now selling at the low end of the line um, at, at half their price uh, just a year or two later. And you pointed out that the in the pricing of the Apple products, they all begin to, they appear to come out grouped around 400 bucks. Uh, yeah, that's right. They, they have kind of a 499 kind of breakpoint between these handheld devices and what they would consider desktops and notebooks. And uh, so the iPad, when it, it was just announced this week, starts at $500, which is at the high end of what their iPhones would, uh, would, would sell for. So Apple has done a very good job by using world beater pro um, products uh, uh, to well designed uh, and well yes well designed and easy to use and they're and even using their own chip I understand in that, the iPad that, that they that, have bought yep. a chip manufacturer so they're no longer reliant on Intel or somebody else AMD mm -hmm. to come through with something yeah hold on to their advantage a little bit longer and so this process that they've used has been able to beat proliferation and it's also been able to beat escalation because as they lower their price and get down to the ultimate uh, bottom point they morph into a whole new market with what they have so the iPod morphs into the iPhone, and then everybody's chasing them again, all the way down as the prices go down, the quality goes up. Right, and, and projected perhaps to do exactly with publishing and books, what they were able to do with music, and people said they'll never mm -hmm. be able to do it. And, yeah. and by virtue of uh, determining that people would in fact pay 99 cents for a single song that was easily delivered, they mm -hmm. took the guys who were making it for free but had a very complicated way to do it and not not the least of which was potentially illegal mm -hmm. um, and made it into a money maker and changed the music industry yeah that's right so now they're saying the same thing about publishing interesting um, as, as an author and and now with with your product and the, the product is beating the commodity trap by Richard Devaney is that a decision that you make that it's going to be available on the uh, Kindle through no, Amazon? No, 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 no. The process of commoditization of my book has already started. <laughs> 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 so I fully expect my book to be commoditized, and and uh, if it's not, you can throw the book away. <laughs> right, or I can get it down on Kindle. As a professor, um, and as a reader, and as an author, give us your opinion on e-books. I mean, my generation, um, uh, baby boomer generation, I don't think we're ever going to use ebooks that much. Um, it's just not as comfortable as holding a regular book and piece of paper, but but for my uh, my children's generation, I, th I think it's it's going to be used a lot, um, especially as the, they start changing the format of the books and make the content more interactive. So imagine that now you can actually use that as your search directory and that's backed into the book. We're hearing about multimedia books, so mm -hmm. something's going to come out now that the Kindle obviously is black and white, and and it uh, it's not backlit, and and all of that kind of thing, which I find uh, refreshing. But clearly, there's something like the iPad is you're going to be reading a book, and you can press on uh, the Boston Common, and you'll be able to yeah. literally see a picture come up at the same time that something's showing. It's going to change people's experience, I think, That's dramatically. Right. It's going to become much more interactive. So uh, my, uh, my book is set up so that in the introduction it tells you uh, what are the different types of, of commoditization, deterioration, escalation, and proliferation. And then uh, you uh, can read the rest of the book and, and pick out individual chapters. Uh, if you decide you're in an escalation situation, you can skip to chapter four. But that'll all be done automatically for you. And they might even ask at the front end of the book, which are the, uh, what are the characteristics of your industry? And then say, you, your highlighted and priority chapters uh, are four and, and seven, uh, rather than you having to figure it out yourself as you would with a, a traditional book. 
Uh, last question uh, as we run out of time here and speaking with uh, Richard Devaney, taking advantage of talking specifically about Zara. There's been much talk as a result of the recession about the role place of luxury goods, luxury <laughs> retail. What happens to the concept of luxury within the commodity traps? Uh, well, uh, it depends on what's going on in the rest of the market. Uh, if there's escalation, then luxury is going to become available for the masses in, the, in your industry. If there's deterioration, luxury is going to be only available for a very small minority of people. So the, if you look at the fashion industry, it's, it's already kind of like that. If you want to buy Armani um, a, a, a couture, then it's already only going to be two or 3,000 women in the world. Uh, so in deterioration, oftentimes you find a very small group buying luxury and everybody else getting uh, this imitation, uh, a very quick follow-up. So, so the result is, is that um, uh, I think uh, it depends on the progress in, in, in the marketplace and the, the trajectory uh, uh, and type of commoditization that's going on. So the commodity trap doesn't mean the end of luxury goods? No, not necessarily. Uh, or, or, but in the case of the Lexus versus the Honda, it's a different uh, issue. Well, Lexus is going to have to do a little better in the future. <laughs> and that's Richard uh, Devaney. Uh, and the book, again, is the Beating the Commodity Trap, How to Maximize Your Competitive uh, Position and Increase Your Pricing Power. And I think one of the things about books like this, which are written for a certain audience is the people who pick it up um, will start thinking about something that they probably hadn't really thought of before and, and view it through new eyes. Oh, thanks very much, Paul. I appreciate that. Good to have you with us and uh, best of luck with the book. And I hope whether it's on Kindle Thank or whether it's on the uh, iPad that you sell a lot of them. Thanks very much. Good to be with you. And that brings another episode of McLaughlin at Work to a Close. Paul McLaughlin here. Thank you so much for joining me.